0: When Jabin, king of Hazor, heard of this, he sent to Joab, king of Madon, and to the king of Shimron, and to the king of oh Akshaph, and to the kings who were in the northern hill country, in, in the Agarba, south of Chinaroth, and in the lowland in the napath door to, on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and the west, and the Amorites, and the Hittites, and the Perizzites, and the Jebusites in the hill country, and the Hivites under Hermon in the land of Mizpah. And they came out with all their troops, a great horde, in number like the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. And all these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire." So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merom and fell upon them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel, who struck them and chased them as far as the great Sidon, and Misrepoth, and Maim, and eastward as far as the valley of Mishpah. And they struck them until he left nothing remaining. And Joshua did to them just as the Lord had said to him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took all of them in battle. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle, in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy, but be destroyed, just as the Lord commanded Moses." And Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debor, from Naab, and all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. Only in Gaza and Gath and Ishda did some remain. So Joshua took the whole land according to all the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their tri- tribal allotments, and the land had rest from war. Well, church, on
1: March 9th, uh 1945, uh, General Curtis LeMay uh, began a campaign of firebombing uh, Japan in order to... Um, to end their ability to to make war and to, frankly, uh, break their will to fight. Uh, On that night, um, he sent out some B-29 bombers, initially a few that came from different directions. They dropped napalm bombs uh, across an area of Tokyo to create a fire of X to mark the area that the follow-on bombers were to target on. Uh, That area was 16 square miles, had 750,000 men, women, and children living in homes that were made out of wood and paper. The subsequent uh, bombers, around 300 of them, dropped more than 16, almost 1,700 tons of incendiary bombs on Tokyo that night. The, The napalm, uh, in those bombs turned it into a raging inferno. Um, each bomber could cover an area that was approximately 100 yards wide by 700 yards long. And so the napalm in those bombs devoured everything. Entire city blocks were devastated. Everything turned to ash. The men and women in those neighborhoods, Um, they fled, obviously. Uh, As they were facing the fires, they sought out uh, places where they could hide in bodies of water, ponds, rivers, creeks. Uh, A big municipal pool, for example, a large one was very deep. Uh, More than a 1,000 people uh, fled to that pool and went into the pool. The next day, rescuers found uh, their bodies. They had been baked and boiled uh, to death. The water evaporated from the superheated air uh, from those bombs. Ultimately, um, everything in that region was destroyed, and 100,000 men, women, and children died that night, 100,000 civilians. For several centuries of Western civilization, targeting civilians in war was anathema. It was considered immoral, wrong. Both sides observed this. It was forbidden. This began to change, actually, in the American Civil War, when Sherman began, especially his march through the South, when civilians were intentionally targeted. It grew even more extreme in World War I, uh, especially when the Germans came into Belgium, when, again... The, the civilians were massacred by the thousands as there was resistance from the Belgium army. And that continued to grow during World War I. It reached its zenith in World War II. And ultimately, I believe it's around 50 million civilians died in World War II. Now, what's interesting is after the, the Japanese bombed uh, Pearl Harbor, when Americans were surveyed after that surprise attack, the overwhelming sentiment of the American people was that it was immoral and wrong to target civilians in war. Yet three, late, three years later, in 1945, when General LeMay did this, uh, a few days later, he did it again, another neighborhood And then he did it again to another city. This continued on and on through the summer until ultimately the dropping of the atomic bombs on Nagasaki and Hiroshima. But it was interesting, a few days after that second bombing of Tokyo, surveys and polling was done. And overwhelmingly, the American politicians, American leaders, the American, obviously the soldiers, and amazingly, overwhelming within the American citizenship and citizenry, our fellow Americans approved of this bombing in Tokyo. Now, today, in modern academic and human rights circles, General LeMay is considered a war criminal. He's considered America's worst war criminal. Um, as one person, uh, one pers- uh, you know, uh, a historian and scholar wrote, LeMay was a monster. But he was our monster. So we hid him under the bed instead of demolishing his character and everything he stood for. So that's the perspective in today's world. I always find it's interesting that those who don't live events and actually face the existential threats and the dangers believe themselves qualified to pass judgment on the people who actually have to face those existential threats and dangers and have to face the evil and make hard decisions. It's easy to Monday morning quarterback and have the moral high ground when you sit in the comfort of 21st century America and your nation was not being threatened by a global power that was merciless and cruel and would not surrender even when faced with the worst odds. So I bring that up because we see similar sentiments and opinions expressed uh, about Christianity and our Lord uh, when people come to passages like Joshua chapter 11. If you were wondering what the tie-in to, the, to that is, is the sentiment towards people like General LeMay is often expressed towards God and towards the people of God because of passages like John, uh, Joshua chapter 11. And in case you are horrified by the implications of what Jacob just read, if it makes you queasy and uncomfortable, I'm going to encourage you to pause this morning and stop and take a deep breath and think about what God says before judging him and his people. Let's start, first of all, with the necessity of total war. That's what you see in Joshua total war. People are eradicated from the face of the earth, the armies and the civilians, just as we saw in World War II. Now, to set the context here, remember last week in Joshua 10, uh, the Israelites, they answered the call of the Gibeonites, were being attacked, and what, what resulted was the southern campaign. They had that wonderful, but incredible battle in that one day where God showed up big and the hailstones and all of that. But that was the kicking off point of an entire campaign. Joshua and the army would continue to move south and they would conquer city after city, ultimately going all the way down to the border of Egypt, to the border of of the Philistines and over across into the desert areas of Judea. They come back to their base camp, Gilgal, after a lengthy period of time. And after they're resting for a while, they realize there is a new enemy because God's enemies are numerous. And as you see in this passage, they are powerful. And so as a result, Israel cannot rest In verses 1 to 3, we're introduced to this man by the name of Jabin of Hazor. He reaches out to all the major cities in the northern portion of Palestine, all the way up to Syria, all of these major large cities with armies, city-states ruled by kings, all of the different Ivites and parasites, and all of those people. I mean, they're everywhere, right? He brings together all of these disparate people group who, are, again, are naturally sometimes enemies, and now they are allied. And so we read in verse 4, they came out with all their troops, a great horde, in number like the sand that's on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots, and all these kings joined forces. Hazor, the city, was a prominent city. It sat on the highway that ran from Egypt up to Damascus and over to Babylon. And so it was a wealthy trading center. It had large walls. It was very populated. It had a large army. And as you're reading here, they, they were well equipped. By human standards, this conglomeration, this federation, this northern federation was so strong that the Israelites had no chance to win. This was an unwinnable battle. The enemy is much larger, and they are more technologically advanced. They are fighting with cavalry and with chariots. And If you know anything about warfare, uh, foot soldiers don't do well against chariots and horses. They get run over, and it's, it's devastating. In fact, Josephus, the Jewish historian in the first century, writing about this event in the life of history, of of Israel in their history, said, now the number of the whole army, the other army, the opposing army, was 300,000 armed footmen and 10,000 horsemen and 20,000 chariots, so that the multitude of the enemies affrighted both Joshua himself and the Israelites. And they, instead of being full of hope of good success, were superstitiously timorous, with the great terror with which they were stricken. From a human perspective, you can understand why the Israelites would be afraid. But in reality, they didn't need to be afraid. They had nothing to be afraid of. This passage reminds us again that our doubts and fears, they are absolutely no match for God's power and, promises. and this is what the Israelites experienced in this passage. God displayed his absolute power towards these people who were living in such open rebellion towards him. Verses that were not read by Jacob earlier in verse 16. Joshua took all that land. And actually what we have here is a summary account of not only the northern campaign, but now the southern campaign. See, so he took all the land, the hill country and all of the Negeb, and all of the land of Goshen and the lowlands of the Arabah and the hill country. That's the southern campaign and its lowlands. From Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir, as far as Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon, he captured all their kings and struck them and put them to death. This is the northern campaign. And in this northern campaign, God once again, and this massive, campaign against this large army demonstrates his absolute power to confront his enemies and the enemies of his people he once again demonstrates the ability to fulfill all of his promises towards god's people he does this in the large macro perspective but verse 20 shows us that he carries the same power forward at the personal level at the micro level For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. Now, let's stop right there. A verse like verse 20 makes this passage even worse to many. Not only do you have the Israelites killing everyone, the soldiers, the men, the women, the, the, they're, they're, they're annihilating everyone. You then see a verse like this that says, oh, and God hardened their heart so that they would fight against Israel and come out against battle. And people go, what on earth is going on here? This doesn't sound like a God I want to worship. Remember, the skeptics through the years have come at passages like this and said, see, this is why you shouldn't even believe in the God of the Bible. He's an ogre. You know, he's some kind of masochistic, evil God who kills innocent people. But here's what we need to remember here. The consistent testimony of Scripture is that God hardens the hearts of people who have given themselves over to heinous sin and who definitively, openly, uh, defiantly, and consistently rebel against him. His hardening is a form of judgment against people who have already hardened their own hearts towards God and his word and his will. We see this in Pharaoh. We see this in Uh, Romans chapter one as people give themselves over to heinous sin as people rebel against God give him the figurative spiritual middle finger saying you have no rule over me I am my own God we will do what we want to do in time God will harden that heart and it is a form of judgment against them so it's not like a passage like this is saying and don't walk away thinking oh Here are these innocent Canaanite people who really wanted to worship God, but God says, (laughs) no, you can't come to me. I'm hardening your heart, even though you want to. Not at all. You see, what God does in the hardening of the heart, he removes the common grace that even unbelievers receive from God. He removes the common mercy that, that that, that everyone receives. He essentially gives people what they want and what they want is nothing to do with God and when God gives you that what you want it creates a hardened heart and the depths of depravity and sin are amazing so we need to remember that we need to remember that in this situation this total war that's being commanded by God, the Israelites are the instruments of God's power and righteous judgment. For centuries, for centuries, the Amorites and the Canaanites had been practicing the most egregious forms of pagan uh, religion. They were known to sacrifice their own children as part of their religion. All the way back in Genesis, God told Abraham... I believe in chapter 15, your descendants are going to be in Egypt for at least 400 years because over those 400 years, the Amorites and the Canaanites are going to store up my wrath towards them. In other words, for 400 years, they could have turned to God and received forgiveness from God, but instead they rebel and rebel and live and follow demonic and false religions and they store up God's wrath until finally on this at this time the israelites are God's instrument of judgment they are God's instruments to bring justice to all the innocent men, women and children who had been killed and abused by these people through the centuries and what you'll see later is that the israelites themselves will experience something similar because They end up going the way of the Amorites and the Canaanites and God responds to his own covenant people consistently with the same judgment and the Assyrians come in. Again, a harsh people and they destroy Israel because of the same sins that the Canaanites and the Amorites are being destroyed for here. God is not playing favorites God is expressing his holiness and his justice and his righteousness against pervasive, rebellious, heinous sin. Remember that. Remember that God knew that the Canaanites are going to provide a powerful source of temptation to the Israelites. And so just as the Israelites picked up religious practices and ideas, from the Egyptians when they lived in Egypt for several centuries. God knew the same would happen here if the Canaanites and the Israelites just simply lived together and began to do life together and enter Mary and everything else. So all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 7, God says these people are too dangerous. They will turn away the hearts of your sons and daughters. They must be destroyed. So we come to a passage like this. This is, these are not the actions of some capricious, willy-nilly, vindictive deity. This is intentional. The command to completely exterminate the Canaanites comes out of God's holiness and justice. It accomplishes his demands for justice as the blood of innocents cried out from the ground and from the land. It satisfied his holiness and his righteousness against the people who were in rebellion against him and From God's perspective, the destruction of these unrepentant Canaanites is not a crime against humanity. It instead is a graphic display of his love and his power and his intention to protect his covenant people who he loves. What seems like a bloody, merciless war to us was really God's way of judging sin and establishing an environment where his loved people could rightly worship him and serve him and follow him and be free from the threats of an overwhelming, godless enemy. Now, I need to pause for a moment and make a point before we move on. Let me make the point and point out that these verses are not justification for Christians to view unbelievers as enemies of God that, you know, if we have the opportunity, we should exterminate. There is no place for Christian jihad. There is no place for Christian violence, whether it's literal or metaphorical. There's no place for that in the Bible, in the gospel. God's instructions to Israel to annihilate these Canaanites were specific to the historical situation that was at play there. The norm in the Old Testament, the norm in the New Testament as we see, shows that God addresses the evil of various people groups just as he does our evil today in our world. And so when we come to books like Joshua, in the old testament when we come to books in re- like revelation in the new testament let's understand that these books are not prescriptive they are descriptive they are describing special situations where god has to act in a certain way due to the requirements of his holiness and the good of his people and for the glory of his name they are not mandates for us to be jerks to those who reject jesus they are not mandates for us to take up arms against our government if it ceases to believe in God and encourage godlessness. They are not justification for violence. I just want to make that clear. So the first thing we see here is the necessity of total war. Secondly, the conditions for absolute victory. In verse 6, the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merom and fell upon them. The first condition for absolute victory against an enemy, whatever that enemy form of enemy that may take, is faith. Faith. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 11 that faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Joshua is living by faith. Why? Because he believes God's promise that they're gonna be victorious. Faith takes the promises of God and says, that promise is true reality even if my current situations do not look like that. Even if my current situations are different than what God promises, I am going to believe what God says rather than what I can even see with my very own eyes right now. And this is what Joshua does. It's hard to imagine the people to defeat this enemy. But God says, you're going to defeat him and wipe him out. He believes that and acts upon it. A second condition. Verse 8, "...and the Lord gave him, them into the hand of Israel." Verse 9, Joshua did to them just as the Lord said to him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. Verse 15, just as the Lord had commanded Moses his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. A, A key condition to absolute victory in our lives when facing these things is faith. And the second one, obedience. Obedience. Some, you know, they focus on the hamstring of the horses. and say, why would you hamstring the horses? I mean, everybody loves horses. They're like dogs. They're man's best friend. Okay, that kind of thing. I get it. Um, but why does God do that? It's not that he's cruel to horses. It's because, as the psalmist says, some trust in chariots, others in horses. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. God is removing a temptation from the Israelites to where they might want to rely upon the modern technology of that day. Horses and chariots to carry out their conquests. And God says, ah, I want you trusting me. And so you can't use these horses for war. You can ride them and use them to plow, but not war. But that's not the main point of this passage. Even though those of you who are horse lovers, you perked up at that part, I know, right? The main point of this passage is obedience Joshua obeyed God. Now, was he perfect like Jesus? No. Joshua made mistakes. He sinned. We've seen this already. You know, chapter 6 with Ai. Chapter 9 with Gibeon. He sinned. He didn't perfectly obey God. But how did he respond to his sin? Humble confession and acknowledgement. He didn't justify it. He didn't make excuses for his sin. He fell before God and he asked for forgiveness and he recommitted himself to relying upon the Lord. And God blessed that obedience that he did exhibit. Hey, can I stop and ask you a question real quick? What's the posture of your heart towards God, his commands? What's the posture of your heart? Is it eager obedience? I mean, let's, let's back up. Do you, do you know the commands of God? Are you familiar with what the Bible says about the commands, the law of God, the will of God, the wisdom of God? Do you know it well enough so that when you're facing decisions or situations, you can bring the light of the inspired word of God to bear and then obey what God says? Do you, do you meditate upon it and read it consistently so that you can know what you should do? And then when you're faced with that, if you do know it, are you obedient? Do you obey it? When you don't obey, are you quick to acknowledge your sin and repent? Or is the posture of your heart such that you justify your disobedience? You bow up. You explain it away. You You doubt what God's word says, essentially maybe twisting the scriptures in such a way so that it will rationalize your disobedience. What's the posture of your heart here? The good news of the gospel tells us that you and I are just like Joshua. We are all sinners, yet we can all experience God's victory through us As we live by faith, obeying the promises and the commands of God. There's a third condition. Verse 18. There's faith and obedience. That's essential to experience victory in a Christian life. Thirdly, Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. Perseverance. That long time, we know, when we compare scripture to scripture, actually ended up being seven years of war against the Canaanites. For seven years, he perseveres and he prevails against all of the obstacles and the many difficulties that he faced so that he could complete God's will, fulfill God's role for his life. At the end of his life, like Paul Joshua was able to say he had crossed the finish line. He'd been faithful to the end. Not perfect, none of us are, but he had been true to his Lord. He had run his race and he had completed it, bringing glory to God along the way. There's the necessity of total war. It's a hard one, but it's real. And then there's those conditions for absolute victory. The final verses here, they show us the fruit of persevering faith and obedience. When we look at these final verses, we see a timeless gospel application for every one of us, whether you're a believer or unbeliever. But we also see encouragement in these verses from the gospel. So let's start right there. In verse 21, Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country and there was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. Only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod did some remain. Now, this is like, okay, in the middle of all of this, you have this thing about Anakim, which sounds a little bit like Anakin, and then that makes me think of Darth Vader, but I digress. But, okay, but the Anakim, uh, this, is, this is not just some esoteric little piece of data. This is a very subtle closing of the circle that began almost 50 years before. You remember when the Israelites, and if you don't know the story, here's what happened. The Israelites are led by Moses out of slavery in Egypt to the Exodus. They go through the the Red Sea that is parted. They see the miraculous power of God. They receive the 10 commandments and the law of God. And they finally come to the very border of the promised land and Moses sends out 12 spies. And the spies, they they go throughout the land, they come back, and there is a majority report and there is a minority report. The minority report was led by two of the spies, Joshua, a much younger man at the time, and Caleb, who we'll see in a week or two, who's still alive. They tell the, the Israelites, man, the land is just like God described. It's full of milk and honey. It's fertile. There's crops. The, you know, God's going to give us the victory. We need to go in, defeat these people. And guys, it's paradise for us. Let's do it. That was the minority report. The majority report, guy stands up and he has a bow tie on, no doubt. And he says, um, everything they said is true, but, and that's when you get in trouble, right? But They are so strong. They are so much more powerful than we are. We cannot defeat their walled cities. We cannot defeat their soldiers. And if that wasn't bad enough, they have horses, they have chariots, and then the cherry on the cake, they have giants in the land, the sons of Anak. And we are like grasshoppers against these giants. They are going to wipe us off the face of the earth. And, of course, they argue. They want to actually stone to death Joshua, Caleb, and Moses, and kill them. God finally has enough. He steps in. He says, All right, because of your disobedience and lack of faith, everyone who is here, who is an adult, you will die in the wilderness. And for 40 years, they wander the wilderness. The people who are fighting these enemies in Joshua chapter 11 are their grown up children now. The only people from that previous generation who come into the promised land, Joshua and Caleb, who were not believed. And verses 22 and 23, they encourage us to always trust God, to always ensure that we are walking with God and seeking to fulfill his will and his agenda for our lives, even in the face of opposition, whether that opposition comes from outside the family of God or if the opposition comes from within the family of God. And this little phrase, these little verses right here at the end of chapter 11, the minority report, is now being fully vindicated. Joshua and Caleb are being fully vindicated by God. And the Israelites are being reminded that all the reasons why their parents doubted and were afraid were nothing in the face of God's promises and power. Absolutely nothing. All their fears, those giants are nothing. In the face of God. You know, as a church, in our history, God has called us to to take on a path or to make changes and go a direction that at the time, there were those that might have responded with doubt and fear. Some of those were very well-intentioned and they were understandable. Others probably were not. A good example, I remember years ago, I think it's hmm, been 13 years now or more, when the elders of our church prayed, and we made a decision to change the direction of how we would do global missions and how we would participate in impacting the kingdom around the world. And we, we moved to faith promise missions, and we challenged the church to give beyond their tithe and to a, a fund that all the money would go strictly to helping plant churches and bringing the lost to Christ who do not have the gospel. And I remember at the time, there were all kinds of questions and there were doubts. There were those who said, oh, we cannot do this because if we do, it will take too much money away from our operational fund. We won't be able to pay staff. We won't be able to pay, put, the, you know, it's going to be too big of an impact upon the budget. And then there were those who said, hey, you know, it'll work for a while, but then people will lose interest and then we'll have to come back to another plan. And it's never good to have to do that. There were, there were all kinds of objections. There were objections to us Focusing on planting churches, which is God's plan A in all of redemptive history. No plan B. Some of the questions were legitimate. Some of the doubts and concerns were understandable. Some were not. And yet we look back at this. And we can see the fruit and how God has consistently provided through your obedience and through your faith. And we've now planted dozens of churches. We're well on our way to hitting our goal by our 50th, by our 50th. And it's because we listened to God and trusted him. Now listen, I don't know what the future holds for our church. We're going to be moving into a new facility. It's beautiful. It's going to be great. But I'm certain that at some point, God is going to lead us to change and to adapt so that we can have even more kingdom impact. Let's remember that where he leads us, our doubts and fears are no match for the promises and power of God. No match. That's true at the corporate macro level. That's true at the personal level. Some of you are going to go to work this week and you're filled with fear and concern and doubt you, you want to say something to a coworker about the hope that you have in Jesus, but you're concerned that you might lose your job or it might affect you negatively and so you couldn't provide for your family. Let me encourage you, if you, if God is leading you to say something to someone, obey him. Trust him to take care of your career. Trust him to take care of your family. His promises and power are greater than any of your fears and concerns. Now there's an application here for all of us, a timeless one. Joshua gave the land for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments, and at the end of the war, the land had rest from war. Kent Hughes rightly points out that Hebrews 3 and 4 provide us with the biblically authorized interpretation of the entire Joshua narrative. And, he, and that 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 author, the author of Hebrews was confronting Jewish men and women, some of whom had professed faith in Jesus Christ but now were abandoning the faith and they were returning to the old covenant, embracing works righteousness, a way to justify themselves before God by how well they would do in Judaism. Others we're synthesizing Jesus in the new covenant with the old, and we're tempted to go the same path. And so this author is warning them of the danger of this. And in chapter three, he quotes from Psalm 95, begging them not to harden their hearts towards Jesus, like the Israelites had done in the desert, because they feared giants over trusting God. And as a result, these people never entered the promised land. And he says, Take care. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For if we've come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end, as it said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in rebellion And so as the author of Hebrews then moves into chapter 4, he shows that the rest that Joshua ended up giving and providing to the Israelites, referred here in chapter 11, verse 23, that this rest the Israelites ended up experiencing, as, as wonderful as it was, it was simply foreshadowing the perfect rest that only comes through Jesus Christ. And it's only through Jesus, and this is what the point of the, the author in Hebrews is making, that we can experience God's true eternal rest. And so in verse 8, if Joshua had given them rest, God will not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may, be, may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Since then, we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Some of you here this morning have yet to commit your life to Christ. Your soul needs rest. It needs peace. Everything that you turn to is a counterfeit idol. It will not provide you with that peace. It will not provide you with eternal rest. It only comes through Jesus, and I encourage you, Just as we see Joshua repenting of his sin and turning to God in faith, do the same thing. Repent of your sin. Embrace Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Christian, this passage applies to you too. What is it that's bearing your soul down this morning? What is it that's weighing heavily on you? What are you afraid of? What are you anxious about? What what consumes you? your thoughts, fills you with dread. Have things happened in your life that are hard and as a result you're now bitter towards God? This passage is encouraging you, take advantage of your right as sons and daughters of God. You have access to eternal rest through Jesus Christ. Bring all of those burdens, those fears, those concerns, that anxiety, whatever it may be, and bring it into the very throne room of God and lay it down at His feet because you have that kind of access as a son and daughter of God because you are in Jesus Christ. If you're filled with this kind of heaviness, I would encourage you, preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to your soul so that you can experience the rest that only comes through our lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage and the opportunity to study it and to dig into it. Lord, I pray for the one here this morning who may not know you, who's never experienced and had a, even a taste of what awaits your sons and daughters in eternity, that rest, that peace that passes all understanding. The person here this morning, Lord, who needs that peace. I pray for them whether it's man, woman, or child, may you open their eyes and soften their hearts. May you pour out your grace upon them and draw them to you so that they can see the beauty of our Savior, Jesus. And for my brothers and sisters who are heavy this morning, may you turn their eyes upon Jesus. May you help them to look to him. May they feel and experience the sustenance of their souls the rest that only you can bring them, Jesus. In your name I ask this for their good. Amen.